This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. How is it possible that CIA was ready to insert a team into Afghanistan only 15 days after 9-11? Well, it, 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 to be honest, it's one of those reasons why CIA exists and why there is no other organ in the U.S. government that, that can do what CIA does. We had had a, uh, a very successful element of CIA that dealt with that part of the world, had longstanding relationships with many of the people on the ground. It would not have been the same had we not had those pre-existing relationships. But now, again, many people who weren't our friends quickly got in line when they realized what the U.S. government was about to do. But those that were allied with us really came, came forward. Did you support the president's decision for U.S. forces to remain in Afghanistan? I, I do. Absent U.S. troops there or U.S. presence, strong presence, uh, helping to fight the, the uh, enemy presence there, I don't think the Afghan government can do it on its own. What do you think is the best outcome that we can hope for here? That's a very, very tough question because I don't see any resolution to our current stand. I don't see how we can remove the capability that is there, the U.S. government capability that is keeping things in check. Phil Riley is one of those unsung and largely unknown American heroes. He served a lifetime in the Special Forces and at CIA. At the agency, he spent 29 years in the CIA's National Clandestine Service, where he was a highly successful paramilitary officer and leader of other officers. He served as a chief of station on the multiple occasions and as a division chief, one of the highest positions in the clandestine service. Phil is one of the individuals who often found himself at the crossroads of history. I had an opportunity to talk to Phil about his career, about what CIA paramilitary officers do, and about the historical moments that he was part of. We will be right back with that conversation after a word from our sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, 
making the world a safer place. Phil, welcome to the show. I think our listeners are in for a very special treat today. Thank you. Well, I'm very happy to be here. What made me think about asking you to be on the show is an interview that you recently gave to USA Today when it published a story about the CIA bringing to its museum at CIA headquarters the exact Russian MI-17 helicopter that flew the first CIA team into Afghanistan after 9-11. And you gave them an interview because you were one of the 10 officers, seven paramilitary and and a three-man flight crew that were on that helicopter. And I want to come back to that. But let me start, Phil, by asking you, how do you made your way from the special forces to CIA? Did someone tap you on the shoulder? Did you just apply? How did you end up at CIA? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I was tapped on the shoulder, essentially. I was a young NCO in, uh, in the 7th Special Forces Group, thinking about what was next. My, my three-year enlistment was coming up. I was going to re-up and maybe try for the Delta Force when uh, someone introduced me to the agency liaison officer at uh, Fort Bragg whose job it is to liaise with the U.S. military and not poach, but in fact, uh, that's part of his job as well, is to look it's for It's the officers. unwritten part of the job. It's the unwritten part of the job, the part he get in trouble for. And uh, he put me in contact and uh, submitted my package, uh, or helped me submit it, and for uh, the paramilitary field. And he, in, in, in his pitch, he gave you a sense of what life would be like? He did. He was a storied uh, old-time uh, paramilitary officer himself, who'd spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and had quite a reputation and I, and I knew a bit about the, their activities. And so when he described what they did and what they do, I was immediately interested. And when you were in the Special Forces, did you have any interaction with CIA? Because today there's a tremendous amount of interaction, right? Did you have any then? One of my team members was seconded at one point, or claimed to have been seconded, to an agency operation. But that was the, the extent of it. I had operated in Central America, and I know the agency was there, but no, I had had no, no interaction. They were uh, almost, almost mythical figures. Phil, we've had both analysts and case officers on the show, but you're the first CIA paramilitary officer that we've had on Intelligence Matters. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what paramilitary officers at CIA do. I think there's a lot of crazy ideas out there about what they do. Within the constraints of protecting classified information, can you give us a sense of what a paramilitary officer actually does every day? Right. And my response, depending on when you asked it during the history of CIA, would be different from 1947 to currently. But a paramilitary officer today is an operations officer trained to collect human intelligence, but comes to the CIA having already had significant experience in the U.S. military special operations, be it any of the services, Air Force, Army, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, usually in in one of the special operations elements, sometimes with the Joint Special Operations Command, the the most elite elements of the U.S. military. So they come with a set of skills and then receive the additional training of an agency human officer. So it's unique. That's one of the things that's actually misunderstood inside the agency is that you have the same training as all other case officers have to recruit assets and run those assets for CIA. Exactly. As a staff officer, a paramilitary officer, that is exactly the case. When I was coming up through the ranks, you did not have a guarantee of receiving human training at the farm. And, and uh, you would get it episodically. We'd get slots occasionally. Whereas now it's, it's a routine, regular thing for all of our uh, staff personnel in the paramilitary ranks to have that training and have that dual capability. It, more so, it, there's a strong push 
to have our officers, paramilitary officers, also do conventional case officer tours overseas where you're collecting intelligence and doing um, recruitment operations in conventional, such as they are, environments. And then also going and operating in paramilitary environments. And what's the difference between a traditional environment and a paramilitary environment? We're talking about a war zone? Yeah, I I really am. When I say traditional, I'm thinking about a U.S. embassy environment in in a first world, third world country. It doesn't really matter. but, But in a conventional diplomatic environment, in a place where we may have liaison relationships with the host governments, we may not have liaison relationships, but it's a very conventional in the sense that your your, your modus operandi is, is is very standard and known and, and the way we operate. Paramilitary environments are obviously all war zones, and there's a gray line between what, what, what they are. They're very much different. You don't have the infrastructure, of, oftentimes, of a U.S. embassy environment, much more rustic, much more, uh, you know, dangerous, equally dangerous. Environments and that training you have as a as a military officer—that's where that really pays off. It really does. You know, we also uh, provide our, our personnel, all agency officers, when they operate in those hostile environments, do receive additional training, and I think it's very uh, uh, sufficient for the for the places that we go. But there's no doubt that the paramilitary or the military training we come to the agency with from the U.S. military is helps helps that situation and bear in mind that when i came aboard in the mid 80s there were no active wars going on if central america was going on and i had done some activity there but today the recruits that are coming into the agency could have 10 or 15 years combat experience given what our nation's been doing for the last uh, uh, 20 years yeah so when i first asked the question about what paramilitary officers do you said it depends on what time frame you're talking about right so what's the difference between what a paramilitary officer might have done in the 1970s and 1980s and what they do today? Well, when I, it's a great question. When I came on board, there was even a pejorative term used for paramilitary officers, knuckle-draggers, uh, that they only did the, the, the paramilitary operations. Uh, and by the way, no dishonor in that. But, and, and some may have been typecast as only doing paramilitary, where the idea of being a, a full, fully capable operations officer and paramilitary officers all rolled into one. In fact, that's the title of the current cadre, or PMOOs, paramilitary operations officers, which is now the norm, was very atypical or unusual in the past. All right, so let's go back to that MI-17 helicopter. Spend some time talking about that. Where were you on 9-11? I was in uh, foreign language class. I was uh, going out as the chief of station uh, on an overseas assignment and uh, suffering through a very difficult language uh, on that uh, terrible morning. And what do you remember about that day? Well, I, uh, I was at an outbuilding, and, and when it went down, uh, I, like uh, all of America, uh, were transfixed to the TV, horrified. And that horror turned to anger very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, I was on the phone that day to my, uh, my former uh, office that dealt with special operations, uh, special activities at the time center, asking to, you know, put me in coach. I'm ready to come back. And, and that's exactly what I did that day. You know, I think one of the interesting things, Phil, for you and I to keep in mind here is that a large number of our listeners who are college students were not even in kindergarten yet on 9-11. So for many of them, they don't, they don't have a 9-11 experience, right? It's really, really interesting how much time has passed. It, it, it is. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it's not novel to me, but I, describing as our generation's Pearl Harbor, I, I've heard before, and I use that line. I wasn't around for Pearl Harbor. I wasn't born yet. 
But I can imagine the way our country felt as it geared up ultimately to go to war. I, that was the way I think many, many people in the uh, certainly in the U.S. at large, but but certainly in the U.S. military and, and CIA, we geared up for that type of response. And the fact that 9-11 happened and you experienced that gave you a better understanding of what Pearl Harbor must have felt like. I think so. I definitely I definitely think so. I mean, again, it was horror and, and anger. There was a lot of anger and, and rage, controlled rage. Uh, but I think it focused so many people for the response that, that came, and then we would maybe get into it, but fairly successful response. You know, I remember that night at CIA, so the night of 9-11, there were people, there were retirees who had retired some recently and some years ago who came to the gates and said, I want to come back, I'll do whatever needs to be done. I mean, just remarkable. You, you're exactly right, and I, I have a number of those examples in my mind of people doing that. And it, it really, it, uh, it you know, makes you almost well up here thinking about the sacrifices people made, uh, they were willing to do anything. Okay, so how is it possible that CIA was ready to insert a team into Afghanistan only 15 days after 9-11? How is that possible? Well, to be honest, it's one of those reasons why CIA exists and why there is no other organ in the U.S. government that that can do what CIA does. We had had a, a, we, when I say that, members of the Near East Division, a very successful element of CIA that dealt with that part of the world had longstanding relationships with many of the people on the ground and had the, the capability to engage with them and react and also pave the way for our uh, coming in a very, very uh, fast fashion. It would not have been the same had we not had those pre-existing relationships. Now, again, many people who weren't our friends quickly got in line when they realized what the U.S. government was about to do. But those that were allied with us really, really came, came forward. There's also an agility, right? There's also an agility to the organization that's hard to, that's hard to convey to people. I remember when Director Petraeus first came to the agency, he ordered that something be done. And then several days later asked me when he was going to see the plan for this thing that he <laughs> asked for. And I said, plan, it's already done, right? So there's an agility there that, that, that's hard to overstate. There really is. And we have the organic assets, and that's platforms and personnel, that can lift up and go very, very quickly. And, and it's tremendous support infrastructure across the organization that enables us to do that. So what was the overall mission after 9-11 in Afghanistan, and what was the specific mission of that first flight? That first team, our team, the NALT, Northern Afghanistan Liaison Team, which was codenamed Jawbreaker, that was our call sign on the radio, was to go in and link up with the Northern Alliance. And, and These are the folks who we had the long-term relationship yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. Northern Alliance was, was under the uh, command until the 9th of September 2001 under Ahmed Shah Massoud, who, who was an allied in the sense that the only free portion, non-Taliban-controlled portion of Afghanistan was in the uh, northeast Panjshir Valley region of Afghanistan. He was assassinated by al-Qaeda on the 9th of September. And two days later, obviously, the horrific events of 9-11 occurred. Al-Qaeda pretended to be a journal. Exactly. Team. Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. infiltrated his compound as a journalist team and then uh, blew up their camera, actually, was where the charge was, and he was killed. Why do you think they did that? Did they think that he would lead a charge against the Taliban? He did. They, he was an enemy of theirs. They would have killed him at any opportunity, but that was definitely choreographed. And it really backfired on them. As brilliant a leader as he was, and, and he was a great guerrilla leader, there's no doubt about it, it galvanized the Northern Alliance people. I have never seen a people that was so, where he was so beloved by the people of the Northern Alliance. I had grown men when they recounted 
their experiences with Mr. Um, Massoud that they could break, they would break down talking about the beloved figure that he was. So when we came to the ground, they the Northern Alliance in their minds equated their loss of Ahmed Shamsud on the 9th of September with our loss on, on the 11th of uh, September. It was all in their mind, one attack. And even though the disparity of the two events was drastic, in their minds, we were now one team, and it really worked well. So there was no having to convince them. Absolutely they, not. They were ready to go. So how was it that you were chosen to be part of that first team? There was a little bit of a, and you're well aware of this, an internal scrum in CIA was the counterterrorism center or the Near East Division going to lead, lead the response and in a short arm wrestle, the counterterrorism center uh, won that. There were a variety of people, Kofor Black and other very strong figures who, who brilliantly articulated why that would be the case. And then a, a Gary Schroen was chosen to lead the team. There could not have been a person better chosen. Uh, he spoke the language of the area. He had, had experience in the area. He had met Ahmed Shah Massoud, which was a tremendous uh, bona fide establishment. And, but they knew there would be a huge paramilitary component to this. So Special Activities Division picked me because, again, I was in language school and somewhat free, if you will, that they could pluck me out and, and put me in that position. I had never met Gary. I'd only heard of his, him and his reputation. And uh, it was well-founded, his reputation. And we immediately clicked and formed the team. Do you remember the flight itself? I, oh, I do. I do. The, I, I remember it pretty well. This is the actual infiltration flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it was yeah. the 26th of September. That's exactly right. Yep, I do. Uh, Can you say where the flight started from? Or not? Yeah, no, no. It's uh, well. I believe we can. I mean, we started in Tashkent, and went to Dushanbe, and then from Dushanbe, Tashkent would be Uzbekistan, Dushanbe would be Tajikistan, and then ultimately entered into into Afghanistan. Uh, into the Panjshir Valley. Into the Panjshir Valley. Exactly right. We had uh, ten Americans at that point, seven on the team, uh, and if I could, it's not a correction, but there were actually two paramilitary officers. Okay. Okay. Myself, an individual, I picked okay. two pure, brilliant case officers. Gary Schroen being one of them a communicator, a medic, and an additional uh, officer, and then the three crew members, two pilots and a remarkable uh, crew chief who uh, not only fixed and maintained the helicopter but did generators, vehicles, and anything else we needed. So that was 10 Americans. We picked up a uh, local Afghan pilot who actually knew the valleys, who would actually fly with us because at that point that helicopter was very uh, primitive in its avionics. It's been <laughs> it was upgraded subsequently. But you had, we had a GPS affixed to, to in the cockpit, which is what guided them, not the actual you know avionics. Do you remember what was going through your mind as you were flying in? Well, you know, I I don't know that it was nerves per se, because we knew we were going to an ally, but still there was significant unknowns as to what was going to happen. We also had to fly over at at, at some points of what was Taliban controlled uh, area, and in fact, actually saw a patrol of Taliban at one point underneath us. The real the, the risk, to be honest, at that point was the unknown quality of the airframe and, and frankly, the altitudes we had to fly at. The Anjuman Pass is 14,500 feet. That's high for a helicopter. We're up at 15,000, 16,000 feet. So air is so thin. We're at a heavy bird, extra fuel. And we did it because it's a tremendous workhorse and we had unbelievably skilled pilots. But that was a little uh, dicey. But when, when we did hit the ground, we were met immediately by a Northern Alliance uh, what we become colleagues, and it was an immediately positive reception. And can you then describe, Phil, in general terms, the next couple of months, right, from, from that moment when you landed in the valley to the overthrow of the Taliban in Kabul? How did that play out? Yeah, we, we, we started work immediately. One of the case officers, who was prolific in his reporting, 
we, we sat down with the Northern Alliance and we began to map out the enemy positions. There was a northern front called the Takar Front and there was the Kabul Front down along the northern perimeter of uh, Kabul proper. And we went to those locations, various elements of our team, and we started with, with GPS and other, and other means, started to document exactly where the enemy positions were so that we could feed that back to the U.S. intelligence community, specifically the U.S. military, to help them with what was coming in terms of uh, airstrikes. We also started to fund some of the elements that we were working with. We also organized support flights to airdrop supplies that they may need, everything from food to ammunition, and began to pave the way for the U.S. Uh, military to come into, come into theater. And while you're doing this, there's another effort going on in the South, right, to bring together the Pashtus who would work with us. There was. There weren't teams on ground in, in, in country yet, but there were, were efforts to, to organize uh, elements that had been resident in Pakistan. We're talking about Hamid Karzai and other elements. And that, that organizing effort went on simultaneously. And ultimately, as you know, there were multiple CIA teams with co-located with U.S. Army Special Forces, which had been my, where I'd come from many years prior. And it, was, it, was, it really was a synergistic animal at each one of these bases, yeah. at each one of these uh, teams that operated together. A handful of agency officers, many of them with the uh, human training and the language ability to communicate in that immediate area, and oftentimes a relationship, pre-existing relationship with perhaps the person we were dealing with, and then the, the horsepower of the uh, special forces aid detachments that, that, that deployed with us. So, so I don't know if you know this, but you know, at that time, I was President Bush's daily intelligence briefer. And he wanted to know every detail about what was happening in Afghanistan. So I had this big military map, and every day I would take it in and unfold it on the table and, sh- and, and would show him, right, where, where the different units were and, and what Taliban units were, were being struck. And, you know, he wanted it done, 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 right? And it was remarkable that it got done in, in the time period it did. You know, it's funny because when we were on the ground, we were prepared to host. Actually, we were prepared to go in with our military colleagues. And there was some wrangling within the Beltway that I don't fully understand why the military didn't deploy with us immediately. We, as we prepped to leave, even Northern Virginia, we were, I personally, at least, was on the phone with counterpart military elements uh, and special operations elements to talk about how we were going to work together. And the anticipation was we were going to green line and go together. But as it was, we, we did deploy initially on our own. But the first aid detachment, and it was uh, ODA Triple Nickel, came in on 19 October, and we set up the uh, helicopter landing zone, myself and Doc. Doc, who had been a Vietnam vintage Special Forces soldier, wow. and we thought it was kind of cool to have the, the, the SF element uh, actually uh, doing the uh, landing zone. But they came in under that same period of darkness, Team uh, Alpha, which were, went up to work with Dostum in North, uh, also infiltrated. So ODA, another Special Forces aid detachment, uh, 595, actually deployed as well that same night. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Phil Riley. Do you hear that? That's a dune buggy armed with high-energy lasers designed to take down drone swarms. And it's just one of the breakthroughs being designed and delivered by an extraordinary team of Raytheon innovators. As part of that team, you'll advance technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Defend nations and make the world a safer place. Learn more at Raytheon.com slash careers. So after your your initial service in Afghanistan, after the defeat of the Taliban, 
you come back to CIA and you go work in our counterterrorism center as the chief of operations. That's right. Very senior job. Um, and you have an interesting experience with um, someone who's a current member of Congress. That's exactly right. Uh, I, I came back in uh, late November, early December of uh, uh, 01 and reported to CTC's Special Operations uh, Department, which was created to run the, the CIA response to events of 9-11. Uh, and I walk into that vault, and it was an absolute maelstrom of activity, people running to and fro, phones, and, and, and racing back and forth. And I saw a young man, uh, a tall, lanky, African-American kid, who, who, who was really just excelling at everything. And, and he seemed to be on top, of, completely on top of his game. And, and I found out later that day, I said, who is that guy? He must be in charge or something. He's got to be in charge. I mean, he must be fairly senior to boot. His name was Will Hurd. He was a what's called a pre-CST. He hadn't even started clandestine service training yet. Agency often brings on people a little bit younger and then preps them before they start their training. And Will Hurd, uh, of course, uh, 10 years later, after a successful 10 years with CIA, runs for Congress and is a congressman from uh, Texas. And serves on the, the House Intelligence Committee. House Intelligence uh, is Committee. doing very well and has been a guest here on Intelligence Matters before. So you can't make it up, but uh, very, very impressive. Well, Will, Will will love that story. Okay. That's great. You then spent some time in Iraq, correct? Um, yeah. In fact, during some of the worst, worst of the fighting there. Do you feel, as some did, that the fight in Iraq was taking away from the real fight in Afghanistan or not? Well, uh, was it taking away? Well, yeah, we were splitting resources. W- was the real fight in Afghanistan? No, I mean, there was a real fight going on in, in Iraq at the time. We had a lot of U.S. troops on the uh, on the line. So I, I don't know that, you know, one was better than the other. I mean, certainly, I'll be honest with you, most people considered the Afghanistan effort the more righteous campaign. Mm-hmm. That's where al-Qaeda was. That's where right? al-Qaeda was, and it was a different— After 9-11, they were across the border in Pakistan. Right. It was different with, 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 with Iraq, but not to say that it wasn't a righteous mission in, in and of itself once you're there. I mean, I always told my people at the station, you know, when you're working with the U.S. military and your intelligence is protecting U.S. lives, just literally tactically on the ground, I mean, it's worthwhile what we're doing. So you ultimately end up back in Afghanistan as the chief of station. Right, 08, 09, 2008, um, 2009. The senior, for people that don't know, the senior CIA officer in country, the person responsible for all CIA officers in country and all CIA activities there. That must have been kind of special, right? You're on that first flight in, and then just a few years later, you are back as the guy running the show. Right. It, 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 it was great. It remains probably my high, my high point assignment as, as chief of station there. But to go from when... It was just a couple of us sitting on $3 million in the Panchir Valley with a couple of firearms to, to the massive presence that is there now and operating so efficiently. It, it, was, it was pretty, pretty massive. And, of course, the U.S. military was there in full vigor. State Department was there. We had an active, huge U.S. embassy. It was a completely different dynamic. Um, and you left in early December of 2009. Yep. Something happened in Afghanistan on December 30th of 2009. Can you... Can you talk about that? Sure. That was the uh, suicide of bomber attack in um, in, in Kausta, where we lost a, a number of our uh, seven, I guess. Seven, CIA did. seven, yes. Yeah, one Jordanian. And, uh, and Kost was a Afghan- city in eastern Afghanistan. East Afghanistan, close to the Pakistani border, that provided critical intelligence on al-Qaeda activities within Pakistan, and for, and for that matter, when they crossed the border. It still, to this day, serves as, as a frontline defensive position. But at that time, it was also 
along with Jalalabad, the critical place for the collection of intelligence on, on al-Qaeda. So where were you when you heard? I was back home when I heard. I left the country on 9 December, and uh, of course Jennifer Matthews was the base chief killed in that attack. And I remember high-fiving her on, on the aircraft as I left country as she was coming back from her first short break uh, at home. It was, uh, it was a gut punch because a number of friends, I guess you know, six people were seriously wounded as well, including a number of friends. It was, uh, it was a tough one. I knew a number of the people involved in the, who perished in the attack. It was very, very tough. It's tough for the entire agency population. Were you at Dover when the bodies yes. came home? Yeah, I know. I and a lot of our colleagues uh, went to Dover for the repatriation. It was, uh, it was very tough. You know, what I remember about that is Director Panetta met with the families before the repatriation and I remember he just, he, he forgot about all the classification rules. I mean, he told them everything about what those officers were doing, why they were there, why it was so important. And, and, and I just remember watching in their faces, you know, it, it gave them a deep, deep appreciation of, of the sacrifice of their loved ones. That's a remarkable right. moment. I mean, the sacrifice was too great, but the cause was a very, very noble one, what they were trying to do. You know, thanks for sharing all that because I think it's very important for people to know the risks that CIA officers face in doing their job. Phil, let me just switch here and draw on your experience in Afghanistan and ask you a few questions about your thoughts on where we are today. Did you support the president's decision for U.S. forces to remain in Afghanistan? I I do. Absent U.S. troops there or U.S. presence, strong presence, helping to fight the the uh, enemy presence there, I don't think the Afghan government can do it on its own. So you would have a, a greater problem if, if we would leave. A couple of Afghan experts from our former place of employment told me way back then, back, back when I was working, that if the U.S. left, the Taliban would be knocking on the door of Kabul in a couple months. I, I, I fully agree with that. And is there any doubt in your mind that if the Taliban came back to power that they would provide safe haven to al-Qaeda? I think they would. I I think they would, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, al-Qaeda's got other places to go now. There's a lot of ungoverned spaces now and conflict areas that they could go. But yes, I do believe they'd give safe haven again. So that's the stay argument, right? And I'm supportive of the president's decision. I think it was exactly the right thing to do. So that's the stay argument. But even with us there, right, the Taliban today control more territory than at any time since you flew in on that MI-17. It's kind of remarkable. It is. So what's the, what, what do you think is the best outcome that we can hope for here? That's a very, very tough question because I don't see any resolution to our current stance. And I, and I don't think that, you know, my, my, my grandchildren should be going to Afghanistan, but I don't see how we can remove the capability that is there, the U.S. government capability that is keeping things in check. Now, mind you, it's keeping things in check from a law, from the Taliban regaining power. It can't stop suicide bombs and attacks throughout the capital. The enemy can do that with impunity yeah. and does. Both, both the Taliban and ISIS. And ISIS, both. Uh, and of course, ISIS wasn't there when I was there. They're there now. So I, the off-ramp part is very, very tough for me. You know, we had over 100,000 troops there and we had a very large uh, State Department and international presence trying to do what essentially was nation building and trying to do reconstruction in all the various provinces, it didn't work. Almost none of those efforts are, are, exist now. 
uh, they've all disappeared, and 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 the projects that many of them were focused on have gone away or, or not come to fruition. So I don't see how we're going to do it with the small number on the ground, and the cost, the cost that what the West is putting into the Afghan government to keep it afloat, uh, if that was ever to disappear, that would also lead right. to a collapse. Right, right. So boy, it's hard, right? Yes. Phil, just two more questions for you. What was it like spending a career at CIA? What's your what's your main takeaway? What will you always remember? It, it, it was an absolutely great career, I mean, and a life. And not just but, but working for that organization where every day was an adventure. I mean, very few people, you know, I, I think, want to go to work. And I'd often be at my day. When I was in D.C., I'd be at the desk at 630 in the morning. And you wanted to go. You wanted to turn on that machine and see what was there. Because, you know, you're offline at night. Obviously, you don't have access to classified information. You come in in the morning and you turn that machine on and the world is there in front of you and you're, and you're off to the races. It was just fantastic. I used to tell people that there wasn't a single day where I didn't want to go to work. Exactly right. I used to tell people that I look forward to Mondays, not Fridays, <laughs> right? And people look at me like, what's wrong with you? Um, but it was absolutely true. It's true. Final question. The Talibar. <laughs> Can you tell folks what that is? Yeah, that was... Uh... A bar, actually, okay, within the station spaces. Uh, in Kabul. In Kabul, uh, in, in our um, station, where you could get a drink uh, within moderation. But it, uh, because it had been there for a number of years, it picked up uh, all the various souvenirs, people posting things on the walls. and Everybody who came through would sign their name, right? Sign their, sign name, their name. And you had various pieces of ordinance, inerted ordinance all over the place and weapons and uh, inerted. And it, it was a great place to really decompress at the end of a long day. I mentioned to you this earlier before we started recording. My goal someday when we're done in that particular location and all that is torn down, that we bring the Talibar back to the CIA Museum, maybe put it next to that MI-17. I think that's a great idea. Phil, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks. Thank you. That was Phil Riley. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.